0: Hallelujah, Father, as we have beheld your glory in this creation, we see your handiwork around us. As we, as we have beheld your glory in the new creation of our own hearts, awakened to salvation by the power of your Spirit. As we have beheld your glory in reading, beholding Jesus Christ revealed in the pages of his holy word. I pray, Lord, that we would overflow with the expressions of worship you so deserve that as we continue in this service to add to the wellspring from which to pour out a sweet offering and incense worthy of your name, would you add to what we've already confessed, a growing understanding of your word and who you are from the pages of Holy Scripture. As we open the Scriptures today and as they're proclaimed, would you open our hearts to receive them, we pray. We pray, Lord, that you would open the mouth of myself to proclaim them in spirit and in truth, unencumbered by the means and understanding of man, that the Spirit himself would overrule the limitations in the giving and the hearing of the word today, so that that which remains is a pure and unadulterated proclamation of Christ as Lord, in prophecy and fulfillment and for all time. We pray this day that you would be glorified in fruit from this message, and this service, as we seek to grow in our calling to obey you, and be faithful to your word, be faithful to the call to reach the lost with the gospel and to glorify your name through our changed lives. Would you sanctify us through the proclamation of your scripture today, even as we pray that you would awaken hearts to salvation who may not know you in the first place as we see your authority revealed in your scriptures this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hallelujah. Today it is our gift and privilege to turn to the Scriptures, and I encourage you to do that with me today. If you have your Bibles with, in Genesis 37. Today we'll consider the second half of this chapter which continues to chronicle the unfolding account of Joseph's life, of course the favorite son of Jacob, and the trials that befell him as he began his journey, which we have labeled, according to the legacy that he represents in Scripture, of messianic ascension. Not as the Messiah, of course, per se, but as a messianic figure, one who is called and raised up to save, as a symbolic a forerunner of Jesus Christ. Joseph served this role, and that's my contention and submission to you. And today I seek to further make that case as we see the trials of Joseph lay the framework for this vision, for this main theme of the end of the book of Genesis and the totality of Joseph's life. The title of this morning's message has to do with an early and difficult trial that he faced. The title is Joseph Betrayed. Of course, betrayals that strike the hardest in our heart and are most difficult to bear, are done by those or are executed by those closest to us. And this was certainly the case in Joseph's life, betrayed by his 10 brothers in the fields of Dothan. We pick up on that story today. My aim today, I trust, that we'll be able to connect the dots, see parallels between the calling of Joseph, his life and ministry, and Jesus himself. They're profound and they're deep. And the more you look, the more you see, I suggest. So my goal today in preaching is to behold the glories of Christ from the early trials of Joseph, even the trial of his own betrayal. With that, would you stand out of reverence for the Word of God this day? And listen in your hearing as the Word is proclaimed to you, Genesis 37, 12 through 36, the end of the chapter. Here is the infallible Word of God. Now his brothers went to pastor a pasture their father's flock near Shechem and Israel said to Joseph are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem come i will send you to them and he said to him here i am so he said to him go now see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word so he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him what are you seeking I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan, verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him, into the fierce, throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So then Joseph came to his brothers. They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. They took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. 25. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes Returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. 34. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. At 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of God. You may be seated. the account of Joseph reads just a gripping narrative, a story that draws you in. Of course, this story has captivated generations. And even today, there's modern renditions and movies, folklore, and the like, which draw on these inspiring themes. I submit to you there's a reason for that. True stories of redemption are the most compelling of all, and such is the case in the account of Joseph. If deliverance, as I've suggested, via Messianic ascension, ascension, summarizes Joseph's legacy. So if Joseph's legacy could be summarized by ascending to rule and to save, Messianic Ascension, it makes sense that in the opening chapters of his story, it would begin with low points in his life. Joseph arises from something. From what? From betrayal, from the pit, etc. Joseph eventually arises to rule in Egypt, but as he does so, he leaves behind a number of things, a number of things that we referenced in our chapter, and more to come. In his ascending to rule, in his exaltation, he leaves behind a pit, slavery, betrayal, incarceration, family estrangement, and false accusations. These are behind him, but it's going to take a long time before we see that turn of events and change of chapter in Joseph's life. Our passage today records some of these struggles from his early years. Think of the trauma this could cause to anyone, let alone a 17-year-old shepherd boy, without any of the creature comforts or social safety nets or whatever else we might enjoy, or even law enforcement authorities that give you some hope or Amber Alert services, or people that could maybe perhaps find your boy if he was still alive. These traumatic events render Joseph the victim of nothing less than a human trafficking ring on their way to a pagan land, and this shapes his coming-of-age experience. How would you like to grow up under these conditions? We learn over the course of his life, however, that the schemes of sinners, even human traffickers selling him into slavery and his own brothers selling him to these men, the schemes of sinners are no match for the decree of God Almighty. Do you believe that? The schemes of human traffickers are no match for the decree of God Almighty. That's a huge theme in the account of Joseph's life. He did believe that. We see that in the text, and I submit to you, that is one of the great confident reassurances that allowed him to weather these storms. Now our text opens with Joseph wandering in the the fields of Shechem. We see this in verse 15, a man just a random dude, finds Joseph wandering in the fields. Even that is a significant detail. Why? Well, as one commentator insightfully notes, because of this divinely ordained delay, in other words, God in his sovereign purposes had Joseph wandering aimlessly in Shechem looking for his brothers. Because of this divine delay, if you will, the Ishmaelites arrived at just the right time. That caravan that would receive Joseph as a slave. So you see that God, even in the timing of these events, is sovereign and in charge. But at the time, that would be hard to believe or to see. We have the benefit of 2020 hindsight reading it in the scriptures. When his brothers finally spot the wandering Joseph approaching in Dothan, they plot to kill him. Their conspiracy betrays underlying motives to disrupt the purposes of God and shape of history that shape history, and, and instead uh, manipulate it according to their preferences. You remember the dreams that Joseph had? Two dreams of note in the verses prior. First 1, verse 5. He told his brothers this dream. Verse 6. Hear this dream. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and my sheave arose and stood upright. And kids, what did the other sheaves do? That's right. They bowed down. Second dream. So uh, in this case, he dreams again. And in verse 10, or he says in 9, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. The sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Kids, who do the stars represent bowing down to Joseph? His brothers, that's correct. How about the the sun and the moon? Who do they represent? His mom and dad, that is correct. These are not just dreams... From the wild imagination of a 17-year-old shepherd, these are the word of God revealed by dream, the same means of revelation that his father Jacob had received the word of God. And his brothers resent this. Let's see what's going to become of his dreams now after we kill this kid. You see them scheming to thwart the purposes of God, perhaps in some degree unbeknownst to them, but if they're honest in the depths of their heart, they hate God's plans and purposes, and thus they have set their mind to reshape events according to what they would prefer rather than submit to their brother and in so doing, that's secondary primarily, to submit to the one true sovereign of creation, salvation, and providence. And the question for us today is, will their sabotage prove successful? Anyone who tries to sabotage the will and works of God, the plan of the Almighty, will it prove successful? Well, the answer to that question, in particular in our our story here and in every case, is a resounding no. In time, not only do their sinful actions prove ineffective in halting the plan of God, but those sinful actions themselves prove to be instruments in the hand of our sovereign Lord to exalt their brother and to place him in a position Ultimately, to save the covenant family line from the coming famine. And as we see these events unfold, we can see that God alone is the author of history, of Scripture, and our lives, Joseph's life. And there's nothing more compelling than the true story of redemption. As told by the Spirit of God, inspiring the glorious record of Scripture... And today's passage, I submit, is a textbook example, a compelling, redemptive story inspired by the Word of God, true facts of history that reveal layer upon layer the glory of Jesus Christ and God's purposes in salvation, in providence, and even in uh, discipline of the brothers along the way. Quite amazing indeed. Let me give you, by heading, a few examples of how this story reveals the glories of Jesus, and the beauties of salvation. There are revealing details I submit in this account, these verses that we've read, of the betrayal of Joseph. So that would be our heading today. Revealing details of the betrayal of Joseph. Let me give you four, four revealing details. Number one, directions. Even the compass directions, north and south, or down into the pit, up out of the pit, down to Egypt, down to Sheol. These, I suggest, are revelatory. Secondly, a revealing detail, money. The exchange, the economic exchange, you know, of 20 shekels for Joseph. That's telling. Thirdly, revealing detail, clothing. If you just look at the different uh, elements or how clothing shows up in this account, we're talking like four or five times something related to clothing occurs. And finally, blood. Blood occurs as well. There's three mentions, and that becomes significant to the story. So what do we learn about God's purposes, following these details of the story, directions, money, clothing, and blood. First of all, directions. What do these revealing details uh, tell us about God's purposes in the betrayal of Joseph? Well, first of all, setting the stage, we have in verse 12 and following a map, and I'll try to kind of plot the locations in our minds as we proceed. His brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. So where's Joseph at the time when he sent? He's in Hebron. He sent him, that is Jacob, from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. So imagine straight east of the uh, sea, or no, the Red Sea, I believe, the uh, Dead Sea. I think. Sorry, I'm getting mixed up. Let me consult my map. Straight east of the Dead Sea, right in the middle is Hebron. North about 50 miles straight north, you'll run into Shechem. And then go another 15 miles. Now you're 65 miles from home if you're Joseph. That would be Dothan. So Joseph, in this direction, is following his brothers. He's tracking them down, heading straight north, 65 miles to Dothan. This revealing detail indicates an upward direction. Joseph is going up to Dothan. Shechem lies straight north, about, as we say, 50 miles. And so this would be quite the journey during that time. Joseph would be wandering the fields looking for his brothers, but it would take a lot of traveling even to get to that point. 50 miles is nothing to shake a stick at in the primitive conditions and wilderness areas at that time. At his father's request, nevertheless, he is obedient and faithful and hikes north. And no doubt weary from his journey, yet faithful to the cause, He continues another 15 miles when he hears some helpful information. A man finds him wandering in the fields. He says, what are you seeking? This man is helpful. Joseph says, I'm looking for my brothers. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? The man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph knows what to do. He picks up his sandals, his bag, his meager provisions, his sling, whatever he might have in tow his staff, and continues for another 15 miles north. However, this upward direction, which is sort of symbolic of Joseph at this point, he's a favored son, he wears royal robes, he's on a special mission from his father, he enjoys the status of being the eldest son of his father's favorite wife of four, Um, he's received dreams that he has quite the future in front of him. And he doesn't know exactly what it means, but it definitely would make you feel important, I imagine, to know that one day even family members would pay homage to you. So there must be a little spring in the step as he heads north to Dothan. But Joseph's life is about to take a sharp U-turn, literally and figuratively. Literally, from Dothan, he will be sent down to Egypt, and that is a direct U-turn. Figuratively, this ascent of Joseph... This privilege and this, you know, uh, the favor that he enjoys from his father will be quickly interrupted by a series of trials beyond which most of us could imagine bearing. And so this, the directions of the story kind of set the tone. They set the stage for what's about to come, almost in kind of an anticipation or a suspenseful kind of way. Now, after going up to Dothan, it's not too long, very shortly thereafter, Joseph is sent down to the pit. When his brothers see him from afar, what do they do? They begin to conspire to harm him, indeed to kill him. But Reuben, the oldest, no doubt feeling some responsibility for his brothers and also knowing that he will be the one most likely to call before an audience with his father saying, what happened to my son? He intervenes in this you know, spur of the moment to prevent a crime of passion, and vengeance, outrage, bloodlust. And he says, wait, 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 shed no blood, cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And then we see, as Moses writes, there's a little parenthesis, sort of narrator's note, that he, Reuben, might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. He has at least one ally, at least to spare his life, Reuben. Nevertheless, he does not escape the pit. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, verse 24. They took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. If you were to flash forward in the story, this isn't the first time that Joseph is cast into a pit, so to speak. He identifies his unjust imprisonment later in Egypt, cast into this incarceration circumstance, having been falsely accused, he describes that condition as a pit as well. Joseph ascends from pits, if you will, these low points. Joseph's life is taking a turn. He has gone from the favored sun to being cast below the earth, if you will. He is down here in a reservoir within the ground. Is there hope to arise from this pit? Who does that remind you of? Of course, Joseph being thrown into a cavern in the ground anticipates, it foreshadows, another covenant son to come whose humiliation would be greater still and whose enemies would not spare his life. This, of course, our Lord and Savior Jesus would be cast into the pit of the grave and a stone would be rolled over the face of that cavern and it not only would be too heavy for the average man to lift, but it would be sealed with the insignia of the most powerful empire on earth. Enter at your own risk, at the risk of a legion of centurions taking your own life for violating the governor's command. Thus with seal, sword, guards placed in stone, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, lie dead in the grave for three days and three nights. Joseph did not stay in the pit, and neither did our Lord. And it's a picture of messianic ascension. The pit is not strong enough to thwart God's intentions to save a sinner by the resurrection of his son. And if God has purposes prepared for his covenant son Joseph provisionally to save the family line, he will raise up a Reuben to prevent them from killing him. And though he is thrown into a pit, he will arise. So the directions up to Dothan, down to the pit. Well, Joseph is lifted from the pit. No doubt in the moment you might be tempted to breathe a sigh of relief. But no sooner, verse 28, is he lifted up and he's sent down again, if you will. The Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites. They took Joseph to Egypt. So now Joseph is going down to Egypt. This was the direction we find the Ishmaelites or the Midianites were traveling In verse 25, they were on their way to carry balm, gum, and myrrh down to Egypt. This orientation or this picture language, this direction of down is significant. Throughout the book of Exodus, this language is used to describe a distinction between exile, uh, God's people imprisoned in oppression and hardship, captured by their enemies, and going up from Egypt, deliverance and exodus. You're either down in Egypt or you're ascending, you're exodusing, if you will, exiting, to the promised land. In this sense, Joseph, just as Jacob, his father, did before him, is a picture of what would happen to the covenant son collectively. You remember, Jacob had something of an exile as well. He was um, under the employ of his tyrannical father-in-law for some 20 years in Paddan Aram, an exile down in Patamaran, if you will. But what did God do? He brought him up, out, and to the promised land. Joseph, he has to go down to Egypt now, but there is hope that God will use him to rescue his family from famine, and eventually, yes, even Joseph's bones will cross with the Israelites, that Red Sea journey, and go back up in hope of resurrection to the place of God's promise, Canaan. So these are the pictures. Up to Dothan, a sharp U-turn, down to the pit, down to Egypt. And uh, Jacob, his father, despairs, yea, even down to Sheol. Jacob tore his garments upon the news that his son had likely been torn apart by a wild beast, put sackcloth on his loins, refuses to be comforted. In verse 35, he says, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to my son, mourning Thus his father wept for him. Down to Sheol, a despairing father, realizing the generational consequences of sin. His dysfunctional family once again is rallying to commit an atrocity or to leave him uh, devoid of his favorite son. Joseph, no doubt, is dead. He believes that the only hope of being reconciled to him is if he were to die himself. He's given up all hope of ever seeing his son again in this life. Because of that, he figures he too might as well descend to Sheol, which is the grave or the place of the dead. So these directions set the tone for Joseph's life. They paint a picture of discouragement and despair, and merely interacting with these circumstances on a face-to-face level would no doubt leave you feeling... Like Jacob, despairing unto life itself, sapped of all your energy. Last week, we drew from that picture in Psalm 119, smoke-damaged wineskin. That which is meant to be healthy, vibrant, reconstituted, filled with water, useful, oiled, you know, and so forth. That container in the rafters that receives that smoke damage over time and now it must be restored. No doubt Jacob knew what it felt like to be a smoke-damaged wineskin. And no doubt Joseph wrestled with that feeling of being empty, dry, depleted, abused, abandoned, traumatized, and persecuted. And the author of Psalm 119 asks or, or proclaims resources to carry you through that time. And Joseph exemplifies some of these. And among them is faith faith that God's promises will be assured in spite of 10 wicked brothers, in spite of Potiphar and his lying wife. In spite of an empire, Pharaoh and his wicked, you know, uh, device, devices for the world and so forth. Revealing details of the betrayal of Joseph begin with this direction language that indicates how low things can get. Joseph rock bottom, Joseph's rock bottom, if you will, or one of them. Second revealing detail, money. There is a covenant betrayal for 20 shekels of silver going on here. Verse 26. Then Judas said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? So, as Joseph's brothers are weighing the pros and cons of their decision, do they take into account the way the psalmist tells us to in Psalm 119 the law of God? They certainly do not. They are making their decision based on what they perceive would benefit them at the expense of their brother. They don't spare their brother's life because thou shalt not murder. They don't spare their brother's life because they fear the Lord. They figure after waiting waiting the pros and cons and having a little time to think about it and reasoning with Reuben's suggestion, you know what? We can be rid of our brother another way. We don't have to conceal his blood, but we never have to see his face again if we sell him to the Ishmaelites." So that 20 shekels of silver represents a covenant betrayal. The bonds that are to keep this family together is the loyalty within a believing family that is meant to love and nurture, support, encourage, and be bound to one one another in that unity of the covenant promise. This was the spiritual leadership that Jacob was called to hold forth to his family. And there are times when he exercised it well, and other times not so much. And his sons, well, they bore the fruit of his weak leadership, and this may well be one of those examples. They begin to make negotiations to sell their brother into slavery because it will benefit them. And as they do so, what do they overlook and instead consider? Well, overlooking the fact that Joseph is their brother, but not only that, he is a priceless, a made-in-the-image-of-God person, they begin to treat him like, pro- like property. They disregard, furthermore, in their consideration of selling him the divine prophecies that through Joseph and his ministry, down the line, salvation and rule and the Lord's purposes will unfold. They don't know what that will look like, but they have received two dreams that indicate as much. But this causes them to resent him and to hate him all the more. So what do they do? They sell him. And who do they sell him to? A non-covenant tribe. The Ishmaelites represent peoples outside of the covenant of the Lord. And now they betray their brother. And they sell him for 20 shekels to the pagans, to the outsiders, the outcasts, to the non-covenant people, to those who they have no idea Where they stand with respect to the faith, but as far as but they should know that they are certainly outside of the confines and good graces of the Lord and His Word and the area and the habitation of His dwelling. That is to say, there is no Emmanuel promise for the Ishmaelites, but they don't care. All they care about is themselves, their jealousy, and to be rid of their brother. So they make their family decisions on the basis of a mere economic calculation. Oh, this is so primitive. We would never do such a thing today. You know, the person reading this story in his you know postmodern pride might say. This week I was looking on the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture website. Every once in a while they update their Estimates for how much it costs to raise a child all the way through from dependency to adulthood. And uh, the latest figures I could find were from around 2015. I did a quick calculation using the addition feature on my phone. And according to the USDA, it's going to cost 2.7 million dollars to raise my children to adulthood if they remain but nine. 2.7 million dollars. And uh, this information is often used in policymaking and I suggest in many cases to discourage people from welcoming into their hearts and home the most priceless of all possessions. Let me ask you this, according to the scripture, what's more true? A child costs $300,000 to raise to adulthood or a child is a priceless gift? There are two different ways of looking at human beings and especially those that God has given us charge of in our family. Has he blessed us with riches immeasurable in the children that we have? Or are they a liability and drain on our resources that we wish to avoid? How many times have you heard the argument for abortion based on an economic calculation? We need abortion, the wicked devil worshiper says in our day and age, because there are many women below the poverty line that can't afford to bring their child to term. That's like saying, you know, we, we need to deny people the gift of a million dollars because they can't afford to keep it in their torn jeans. You don't give that person a million dollars, it will fall right through the hole in their jeans. You fool. Take a fraction of that money and go buy everything you need. <clears throat> children are like that. I, I can't afford you know, to have children. So the value of the image of God invested in each individual life And the great privilege of welcoming into your heart and home these priceless possessions. And the whole view of the West as to the next generation is held captive and perverted by these gross economic calculations that fail to take into account where God assigns value. And so the heart that would sell your brother into slavery is the same that would abort a child in a womb. Or to take advantage of human Trafficking ring to be rid of this guy you resent. Sin doesn't change, or the heart of sinners doesn't change, just manifestation takes different shapes in different ages. And so today we know well what it's like to sell the most precious of things for 20 measly shekels. Contrast this with the redemption price. I don't have time to turn there, but in Leviticus 27, verse 5, in the law of God, there's an interesting provision. If someone was dedicated to the service of the Lord, they could be redeemed by a price. And for a man in the age category of Joseph, the cost was exactly 20 shekels. As you look you know, and compare these two scripture references, you find the wickedness of the brothers further illuminated by contrast. According to God's law, this 20 shekels was a redemption price. It was that which would buy back or secure this person who is otherwise dedicated to God. It would be be money given to God in order for this person to be redeemed or bought back. In other words, in the economy of God's law, it's all about redemption and the value of the individual. But on the other side of the coin, what did these brothers do? For the same price, they sold their brother into slavery. And who did they sell him to? Well, the eventual buyer was Potiphar, and in the notes of my Bible it says his name means he whom the sun god has given, he whom the sun god or Ra has given. Quite literally, Potiphar's name meant the minister of Ra, the sun god, the minister of an idol. So literally, for 20 shekels, Joseph's brothers sold him to a pagan minister and worshiper of a false god. It's the opposite of redemption. It's betrayal of the highest order. It illustrates their wicked heart. And this is what we see signaled in this detail of money in the text. Does this foreshadow anything? Is there any further betrayals in Scripture involving money that this account prepares us to expect? Turn with me to Matthew 26. As the story of the future covenant son continues to unfold in the Gospels, Details really come into sharp relief as we consider their background, especially from accounts like this, the story of Joseph. One of these details takes place toward the end of Jesus' ministry. We pick up on this in Matthew 26, 14. Then one of the 12, how many? 12. How many sons of Jacob were there, 12? One of them, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see the intent in the wickedness of Judas' heart mirrors that of Joseph's brothers of old. Incidentally, in that Leviticus 27 uh, reference in the law of God, and given the age of Jesus, his redemption price was 50 shekels and Judas was willing to betray him for 30. He was even cheaper, if you will, than the brothers of Joseph. So we see here that money represents a sort of a quantifying of the values of the human heart in our sin. In our sin, we betray the Lord. We upend the principles of his covenant order, and we do not see value through his eyes, but judge it with ourselves at the center. And the great casualty and consequence of that is slavery, wickedness, betrayal, sin, murder, and all of the other lists of sins that we see catalogued in our lives and through Scripture. There's a third detail, though, that uh, is also in, to be considered that reveals aspects of the betrayal of Joseph. We consider directions money, but now clothing. Clothing stands for four things. I'll list them briefly, and then we'll just cover them in an overview. In this section, clothing stands for dishonor, I submit, verse 23. Guilt, verses 29 and 30. Generational sin, 32 and 33. And despair, 34 and 35. The way clothing plays a role in this story illustrates those four things, dishonor, guilt, generational sin, and despair. The first, of, first of all, it's fairly obvious when we track Joseph's robe and how they treat him and it, as his brothers, that is. <clears throat> Reuben said to him, shed no blood, cast him into this pit in the wilderness. 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. So did they, what, were the, what were the brothers' intentions with this robe? Were they so greedy that they thought, oh, this robe of many colors, no doubt, is very valuable. We could earn even more money. I'll bet you if we sell Joseph with his robe, or we could wheel and deal with the Midianites. So I'll tell you what, we'll give you a slave for 20, or you can get him with a robe of many colors for 25 shekels. You know, um, you know, will you take that deal? Notice, that's not how the robe was used. Later, the robe was desecrated, destroyed, if you will, soaked in blood, and used for deception. The brothers were not interested in stripping the robe to financially gain from it, though it likely was a very valuable piece of material. So why did they strip Joseph of this robe? Why not just throw him into the pit with the robe? Well, that robe represented a call to royalty. That robe, every time they saw it, reminded, no doubt, the brothers of that dream. One day we will bow to this man. Our father favors him. He already dresses like a king. I hate that. And so what do they do? In their resentment, they are not content to just humiliate him by throwing him into a pit. Hey, what do you think about that little future king, 17-year-old shepherd boy? That's what you really are. No, they strip him of his claim to his father's favor and of that figure of future royalty or that uh, symbol of future royalty. They, they rip it off of him. And again, this betrays their heart and foreshadows another humiliation to come. We can go back to the Gospels and event for event, we can track so many of these parallels. What do the wicked do when Jesus is condemned? They know that he has made authoritative claims that surpass everyone else. He has said in so many words that he and the Father are one. You know what that means? Every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. That was the authority claim of Jesus himself. They will bow to him. Oh yeah? You think you're a king? Well, let us strip that robe from you, or let us put a purple one on you, mock you for a while, press crowns of thorns into your head, and then we'll strip them back off, spit in your face, and send you to the cruel death of one who deserves capital punishment. And then we'll see what great king you are. Hail Jesus, king of the Jews, they mock and even put a sign above his head that reads as much. But in so doing, though they strip Jesus of that outward sign of his... dignity, even that seamless tunic that they bargained and cast lots for, and the rest of his garments which they split among them, that did not take away the sovereign call of God. You can take the robes off the king, but if he is called by God, you will one day bow before him. That was the message of Joseph and the message of Jesus. There are rebels today, and they are all around us who hate Jesus Christ and want to strip him of his authority. They do it in all kinds of ways, from the subtle to the overt. There's no way I'm going to bow before the Jesus revealed in Scripture. I have my own idea of who I prefer him to be. Perhaps I'll defer to that God of my imagination, that figment of my own preferences, but not to the Jesus of Scripture. And what do they do? They seek to strip Jesus of his royal robes. But there's a judgment coming. And the only way to escape judgment is to submit to his rule. He alone has the bread of life. Joseph had the bread of life to spare the world from famine. And Jesus has the bread of life to spare the world of eternal damnation. And though men today despise the authority of Jesus Christ and seek in their, in their, uh, in their ways and means and philosophies and all of their pagan behavior to strip his dignity from him, He will not be mocked, and they have a day of reckoning coming. May they bow in humility and repent like Joseph's brothers one day do. So there's a foreshadowing here of the dishonoring of Jesus and what that represents. But clothes represent more guilt. When Reuben sees this situation, what does he do? He returns to the pit, verse 29, he saw Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. Kids, do you ever uh, remember that in scripture that people tear their clothes? Finish this sentence for me, kids. People tear their clothes because they are mad. That's good. Angry, they had strong motion, emotion, anguish, a sense of despair, anger. All of these these overpowering emotions are expressed in that you know physical tearing of the clothes. Clothes were extremely valuable. Took a long time to put together back in that day and age. And if you wanted to signal how upset you really were, you would tear your clothes. And so Reuben does this because he is so upset with what his brothers have done. Why is he troubled? Because he knows he has to stand before his father, Jacob, and give an accounting. Where is my son? Where is my son, Reuben? You are the oldest. Tell me where he is. This is why Reuben says, the boy is gone and where shall I go? Am I to go back and face my father with, now that you just sold this kid out from underneath me, he's gone? How am I to answer to that reckoning of responsibility when I have to say he's gone? Reuben feels the weight of this responsibility. This is just straight-up guilt. How does he deal with it? Well, closer in view again. This is how they deal with it. They dip the robe in blood. And they take this robe of many colors, now soaked in animals, animal fluids, and they bring it to their father. They say, hey, look what we found. Please identify whether this is your son's robe or not. He identified it and said, this is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Generational sin. Before we get to the blood part, notice what's going on here. Deceiving the father with animals and clothing. Does this sound familiar? This is the sins of the father, the generational sins repeated yet one more time. Jacob himself is no stranger to this kind of tactic. How did he deceive his blind father Isaac when he wanted the blessing, when he, wanted, <clears throat> when he was worried that he, he wouldn't get it? Well, he took on animal skins, an animal was killed, the fur was placed upon his neck and arms, and he went in and fooled his father. Well, now, with an animal killed and with clothing, once again, the next generation is deceiving the father. Thus, clothing signals, it stands for dishonor, guilt, generational sin. And finally, there's another clothes-tearing circumstance. Man, this is such a horrible situation. Things go from bad to worse. They finally tell Jacob this, as we just read. And how does he react? 34, Jacob, so upset, tore his garments. And then another reference to clothing, sackcloth, put sackcloth on his loins. He tore off his garments, that would signify his authority and status as a patriarch, and takes on these ragged clothing, just a little bit, bare minimum, on his body to demonstrate how distraught he is. And then he mourns, refuses to be consoled, and says that the only way he can ever imagine uh, you know, the future, or the only thing he sees in his future It's succumbing to death so he can be rejoined with his favorite son in the place of the grave. Despair. Jacob tears his clothes and dons sackcloth. The patriarchal family is brought low. The patriarch, the ruler, leaving his dignity aside, humbles, humiliates himself. The robe is stripped off his son in active dishonor. And Jacob strips off his own robes in self-deprecation. A pitiful picture indeed. Sin has laid this family bare. The final detail. Directions, money, clothing, and now blood. Blood figures prominently in this account as well. First, there's the, the conspiracy to kill. This involves blood, of course. So they saw him from afar. Verse 18, his brothers looking at Joseph coming their way. And before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what becomes of his dreams. And so in their first design, the blood on Joseph's robe was supposed to be his own. That was the original plan, conspire to kill. They were going to smear the blood of Joseph himself, no doubt, on his robes, and then bring those to his father and say, this is proof that an animal has tore him apart. Reuben steps in. He intervenes. As we said, he rescues him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said, shed no blood. Cast him into this pit here. Later, the brothers seem to agree with this reasonable proposal. What profit is it, is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? As blinded by sin as these young men are, these brothers are, they no doubt have something in the back of their mind that, that uh, they are mindful of in this negotiation, and that would be the sin of Cain. There was another set of brothers who, at, who were at odds, just two, Cain versus Abel. Kids, you remember that story? What did Cain do to Abel, kids? That's right, he killed him. He shed the innocent blood of his brother Abel, and the blood cried out from the ground. And one commentator put it this way, that blood of injustice cried out, For the cleansing judgment waters of the great flood to wash away the reckoning that that sin cried out for. That's a powerful picture. What is blood guilt? It's a staining of the very soil. These are pictures. It's a desecration. It's making unholy God's creation such that the only only two things can wash it clean again. One is a cataclysmic judgment What gives every wicked man what they deserve. The second, ironically, is blood. Blood shed from a substitute sacrifice. Which will wash the blood clean from the land? The flood of judgment unto hell itself or Jesus' blood? Taking the burden of that justice upon his own back. That's ultimately the contrast that is drawn. Nevertheless, blood stands for conspiracy to kill. These brothers don't repent of the heart and legacy of Cain. They just are more sneaky about it. But Blood represents that desire to do as Cain did, to be rid of their brother. And then there's this second word, conspiracy, conceal. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? So there's this idea that they can trick God, that though they're murderous of heart, they can find a technicality and use a loophole. They can conceal their intentions. They can pass it off as something else. And then that brings up a third word that blood represents, if you will, cover. They will take the blood of an animal and they will cover Joseph's robe with it and then they will bring it back to their father so that they can get away with their sin. Will it work? Of course it does not. But what is illustrated in this? The question, will a goat substitute cover our sin? What these brothers are seeking to do is pursue a false atonement. They know that blood must be shed to cover their sin, yet they are looking to an idol, to their own devices, their own schemes, their own works to justify themselves. The blood of this goat smearing the garments of their brother represents false hope of salvation. We can get away with this. We can cover our sin by the blood of this animal. Will it work? Of course, the answer is no. Now, animals would be killed all throughout symbolic history as a picture of blood that does cover sin. But the scriptures are clear. The blood of bulls and goats intrinsically never washes away sin. But the scriptures are also clear. There is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God that certainly can. Only the robes dipped in the blood of Jesus, which are pictured in the book of Revelation, can truly wash away the guilt of sin. And this blood has the cleansing power to take the judgment our sin deserves upon another. The brothers hoped a goat could justify them, but it could not. There was the blood of one to come, however that could, and Joseph himself was a picture of that Savior. Joseph would go on to ascend from the pit unto ruling a second in command of Egypt. And as such, he was placed in a symbolic way to save the covenant sons, and so he did. Now, in our misguided attempts to cover sin by our own devices, we will only add to our record of debt. Paul says this, the whole scriptures testify. But we foreshadow in our text, Christ in contrast. One reference to close on, would you turn there with me as you're able. We referenced it last time we were in Genesis, I believe, the famous messianic text, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, the question remains, we're considering today, is there blood, in fact, sufficient to cleanse us from our guilt and sin? There is the blood of one that can. Isaiah 53, 5, prophetically proclaims him, and as such, we see his cleansing power in verse 5, when the prophet says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Joseph was smitten by his brothers. He was abused. He was betrayed. He was sold. He was dishonored. He was abandoned and so forth. But God used those very things, that persecution against the brother, as an instrument to raise him up to save the family. This is a picture of Christ. We said early on in the introduction to this message that God is so powerful and sovereign that he uses the very sin meant to destroy our own means of salvation as an instrument in his hand to accomplish our redemption. And this is exactly what happened in the case of Jesus. There was a picture of it in Joseph's life, but it was fulfilled to the nth degree in Jesus. Though he was crucified at the hands of sinners, that precious blood washed away the sins of all the murderous hearts that would place their faith in him. It is a glorious picture indeed. The blood of bulls and goats and our own schemes will never suffice, but Jesus Christ died so we don't have to eternally. And in that blood is our only hope. Let us close in prayer of thankfulness and a declaration of our uh, faith in this fact. O Lord, Jesus, we thank you for your precious blood that is able to save sinners as wicked as us and as wicked as Joseph's brothers. We thank you that blood has been shed which can atone and wash away sins. We thank you, Lord, that the cross proclaims this for all times and for all people who would but bow and confess and place their hope and faith in the cleansing power of Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, slaughtered in their place. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your gift, your immeasurable gift of redemption for us. Lord, I pray that this message of true hope would be on the lips and hearts of your people, that we'd be encouraged to proclaim as much to others, and that you would use, Lord, the message, the testimony of everyone in Scripture from Joseph to Jesus as we have greater understanding to train up our children and others who might listen that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. In all of this, Lord, may your church be equipped. And may Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our ascended Messiah, be glorified. It's in his name we pray. Amen.